This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor, thing, nor, things, to, nor things in the past, nor things to come, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, or a few moments of prayer just to uh, orient us to the Lord and to His Word. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to be together this morning, to focus upon Your Word. We know that Your Word is that part of the equation for our spiritual growth today. We are sanctified by truth. But we are also sanctified as a result of our walk by the Spirit. And so it is through God, the Holy Spirit, and your word that we are brought to spiritual maturity. This is the means by which we grow. And so, Father, as we study today, may we come to understand more fully what is going on and the purpose of the local church in this church age, that we may recognize its significance in terms of our worship and in terms of our spiritual growth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been studying in Ephesians, and especially in Ephesians chapter 4, what we are provided in Christ. Ephesians 1 begins with the emphasis on the fact that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. The first three chapters go through a number of different ways in which God has blessed us because as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in Him. That is our position. Our legal identity is in Christ. In Christ, we have been blessed with all these spiritual blessings that, uh, as Paul identifies them at the end of chapter uh, 3, they are beyond anything that we can ask or think. And then he moves into chapters 4, 5, and 6, where he begins to talk about how we should live in light of all of those blessings, in light of who we are in Christ, in, in light of this high position this exalted position that we have as members of the body of Christ. And then starting in verse 7, we saw that not only do we have certain things that are provided for all of us, that's covered in the first six verses, but then to each one of us, grace was given. And we studied that that phrase is mostly used by Paul in relation to the way Uh, We have been gifted by God, gifted in terms of spiritual gifts. Then in verses 8 and 9, there is a reference to Psalm 68, 18, talking about the ascension. 
and applying the verse from Psalm 68:18 that focused on the ascension of God in triumph to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in the Old Testament and applying that to the ascension of Christ to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father awaiting the time when he is to ask for the kingdom and he will be given the kingdom. And then it moves from there to the fact that he has given us certain things. And these things relate to spiritually gifted leadership. This is verses 11 through 13, which uh, we have uh, been introducing ourselves to over the last couple of Sundays. These verses read, And he himself, that is Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And then the purpose for that, for those gifted leaders is given in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the, and that equipping goes to another level. It's a different word translated for in the, in the Greek. Uh, for the work of the ministry, the equipping of the saints is for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this gives us a foundation of what God, Christ has provided for his body that we might grow to spiritual maturity because that's the end game. Uh, Christ is not interested in us staying as diaper babies, which unfortunately is true for a lot of churches. One of the most significant observations I heard made about 30 years ago at a pastor's conference was uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher who at that time was the chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. Now he is with the Lord. But he made the observation that the church is the world's largest nursery. And the nursery workers, that is the pastors, don't have a clue how to get the babies out of diapers. And that's true. Most churches have no vision for developing the sheep into mature Christian uh, saints. And it is sad that they don't know how to do this. They put the emphasis on a lot of the wrong things instead of what the Scripture teaches. And the central passage for what the Lord has designed and provided for us to have spiritual growth is this passage that we are uh, beginning to study. So we just introduced a few things about the church over the last two Sundays, what the Bible teaches about the church, which is known as ecclesiology. And the purpose for that is just so we understand some basic things that the Scriptures say about the church. First of all, that the word church in the New Testament is used in different ways. It's used to refer to the universal church or the invisible church, that is, all of those who have trusted in Christ as Savior through the centuries, uh, whether they are alive today or whether they are with the Lord, face-to-face with the Lord in heaven. The term church in the New Testament, in the Greek, 
as a singular word refers to both individual congregations as well as to a group of churches in a city, for example, the church in Ephesus or the church in Corinth, or it can refer to a, a number of churches within a region, the church, where in the scripture it talks about the churches in uh, Syria and Jerusalem and uh, Samaria, uh, and it's a singular word in the Greek, but the English translates it as a plural, so it's using that one singular noun, and that's important because there have been some Oh, cults and sects that have tried to say, see, there should only be one real church in each location. And uh, that is not what the scriptures teach at all. So the singular word church can also refers to a single group, a local expression of the body of Christ, such as West Houston Bible Church. We're just a local expression of the body of Christ. Next thing we studied is when did the church begin? The church began, the body of Christ was initially formed on the day of Pentecost in AD 33, which is Acts chapter 2. In Matthew 16:18, Jesus used the future tense of the verb, I will build my church, indicating it wasn't in existence yet, it was at some time in the future. By Acts 5.11, that's the first time the word church is used in Acts, it recognizes the church is already in existence, that is, the body of Christ. That which is the sign of the church is the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is for every single believer at the instant of salvation. It is not something we experience. It's not something that is indicated by some overt uh, action. It is simply the uh, non-experiential act by the Holy Spirit where he is used by Christ to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. John the Baptist said it was yet future. He said, one will come after me who will, future tense, baptize you by the Spirit and by fire. And in Acts 1.5, just before Christ ascended to heaven, He's referred back to John's baptism. He said, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so not many days later, ten days later, the Holy Spirit descended, and that's described in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The third thing was that we are not to identify the church with the kingdom. This is a common error today. The kingdom that is referred to in the Old Testament that is predicted and prophesied that will be uh, ruled by the Messiah is a literal geopolitical kingdom uh, that will have as its head the Lord Jesus Christ as the greater son of David who is ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem. That does not come until Christ returns at the second coming. The other, uh, the other thing that we emphasized was you have to distinguish the different ways in which kingdom has been used in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, it refers to the universal rule of God over all of his creation. 
Second, it is used to describe God's theocratic rule over Israel. Remember, God is the king of Israel according to the Mosaic law. And so that's referred to as a theocracy. He's the, it's the theocratic kingdom. And then third, it refers to that future reign of Messiah from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And then the last thing we looked at last time is that the church is not spiritual Israel. The church is distinct from Israel. God's plan has one plan for Israel and another plan for the church. They are to be kept separate. And one other verse that we looked at last time related to the kingdom is in Daniel 7:26 and 27 that emphasizes that in the future, during that time when the Antichrist rules, who is identified as the little horn in these, among these beasts in Daniel 7, is that his dominion is taken away, verse 26, but the court shall be seated. I think that's a picture of what's, what we see described in Revelation 4 and 5. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion. The kingdom is not given to Christ until after it is taken away from the Antichrist. We haven't seen the Antichrist yet, so that tells us the kingdom has not come in any way, shape, or form. So we must understand that we are in the church age. We are the body of Christ. And as such, we have been given distinct privileges and assets that no other believer in any other dispensation has. And a part of that is that we have been, uh, Christ has given these gifted individuals to the church. So in Ephesians 4 and 11 and 12 we read, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Their purpose is stated two different ways in the next verse, which we'll get to eventually. It is the overall purpose is the equipping of the saints, and that equipping is for two things, for the work of ministry and for the edification of the body of Christ. Now, it's going to take us uh, two or three sessions to get through this verse to understand it because there are a number of problems in the way it's translated, sometimes in the way it's taught. And so we need to be very specific to make sure we understand exactly what is going on in this verse. When we get to the last two nouns that are given here, pastors and teachers, when we get there, we will discuss how they are related to one another uh, in terms of the Greek construction. But generally speaking, when you look at this in English and you see the word some repeated four times, this is actually translating a certain structure, grammatical structure in the Greek. And what you have in the front of each of these phrases is the uh, Greek word men, M-E-N. And it just indicates uh, what the structure is. So it's this, some this, some that, some the other thing. That's why the English translates it some. What that also indicates is that when you get to those last two nouns, that they are viewed as the same, probably the same person. Okay, that even though they're, they're distinct, 
they are united by way of this construction. And we'll get to the details of that later on because there's a lot of debate about that. So we, he gives four gifts here. That's one of the things that has to be addressed because you have a heretical movement today that is called the New Apostolic Reformation. And it is very, very sad because you find a lot of the people that are associated with that to be extremely, uh, extremely focused on politics. Yet, we are not having an apostolic reformation. As we'll see this morning, there is no, uh, there has been no apostle since the death of the apostle John in approximately uh, 95, 96 uh, AD. And yet, many of these individuals are out there and they are often linked with dominion theology and post-millennial theology and uh, theonomy, which emphasizes bringing in, uh, bringing back the Mosaic law for today. And there are a lot of problems with all of those things. The new apostolic reformation isn't restricted to a denomination or, or a particular group. It's just sort of a fluid group. There actually is an outstanding book that has been written about this on the new apostolic reformation written by a couple of graduates from um, uh, Talbot Seminary and, uh, so, and Biola College and Talbot Seminary. And it's outstanding, and it indicates what a lot of the problems are. And one of the problems that I had during the previous uh, presidential administration was a large number of those, who, not everyone, but a large number of those who were part of the so-called uh, Christian Council or Evangelical Council that surrounded uh, President Trump all bought into New Apostolic Reformation. Now, not every one of them did, but a number of them did. And as I always say, we have to remember that a right thing done in a wrong way or for a wrong reason is wrong. Only a right thing done for the right reason and the right way is right. And this was extremely troublesome to me when I understood just how uh, theologically flaky and heretical some of those people were that surrounded the president. Now, not all of them. Franklin Graham and um, Robert Jeffers up at First Baptist in Dallas and, and several others were fairly solid, but a large number uh, were, very, uh, were fr very fringe at best. Okay, so we have to understand some of these uh, particular issues. So... I'm not going to go into New Apostolic Reformation in any more detail than that, but I encourage you, if you're interested, to get that book. Uh, what we're going to look at first is what does the Bible teach about apostles? Exactly what is an apostle? We have to focus on that question. What is an apostle? Uh, what was the function of these apostles? Are there four or five different spiritual gifts in this group, and are they all permanent or are some temporary? And we will examine those. Uh, some 44 years ago, uh, Dr. Robert Duncan Culver, who at the time was a professor of theology at um, the um, 
uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago, published an article in the uh, BibSAC, Bibliotheca Sacra, the Theological Journal of Dallas Theological Seminary, entitled Apostles and the Apostolate in the New Testament. And, and he was very prescient in what he said when he opened the article. He said, a number of currents of thought in contemporary church life, remember this was 44 years ago, uh, invite fresh attention to the precise nature and purpose of the New Testament apostolate. Some Roman Catholics and Charismatics are presenting new ideas about Revelation. In the age of lawlessness, persons in many denominations and sects are raising questions about ecclesiastical authority. Others have misconceptions about the signs of an apostle. In addition, there is the growing habit of referring to certain foreign missionaries or strong religious leaders as apostles, apparently intended literally rather than metaphorically. A lot has happened with regard to that since that time. At that time that he wrote this, the movement known as the Wimber-Wagner movement or Wagner-Wimber movement or the Signs and Wonders movement or Power Evangelism was just beginning in Southern California. It became quite uh, large and influential in the 80s and 90s. And the prime mover and shaker behind it was a professor from Fuller Theological Seminary uh, by the name of Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner believed that all of these gifts were present for today and that this was uh, a five-fold ministry that needed to be restored to the church for it to be uh, for it to be healthy. That movement, the signs and wonders, power evangelism, whatever you want to call it, was also called the third wave of the Holy Spirit. When that began to lose its steam by the late 80s or early 90s, uh, Peter Wagner started another movement that is what I referred to earlier, the New Apostolic Reformation. When they started that, he said the one thing that we missed in the uh, third wave was the emphasis on the rise of new apostles. So this is a very present problem in contemporary Christianity. What does the Bible say? So the first thing we need to look at is just the terminology. The noun translated apostle is the Greek word apostolos. And apostolos comes to us in English by way of Latin. It's just uh, basically transliterating the word, moving from one language to another. It is used 80 times in the Greek New Testament. And I broke it down. 34 of those times are used by Luke, who was Paul's associate, 34 times by Paul, but notice, only three times by Peter, one in each, Matthew, Mark, and John, and Hebrews, 1 Peter, and Jude, and twice in 2 Peter, and three times in Revelation. So you see that the dominant use is in uh, Luke, the Gospel, as well as Acts, and also by uh, by the apostle, by the apostle Paul, the word apostolos under our second point 
is that it's a word that has a long history. It goes back uh, many centuries in uh, classical Greek, but in classical Greek it didn't have the same sense, the same nuance that it has in the New Testament. It was originally used in classical Greek for a high-ranking admiral or a general officer who's chosen to command a uh, to command either an army or a naval fleet. In fact, it was often used for the fleet itself that was sent out on a mission. The basic meaning of that word is to be sent out, but it doesn't have the sense of a personal emissary or representative until you find it in the New Testament. And there it has this specific use of a personal envoy that is commissioned by someone or something for a specific task or a specific mission. It has its roots in that sense in a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is shalak, that's the verb form, and it was used of sending a messenger on a mission in several contexts. For example, in Second Corinthians, uh, I mean Second Chronicles 17:7, 7, uh, it is used to um, refer to someone sent on a mission, and there it uses a form of the word the shaliach. And a shaliach was a specific messenger. Now, I, I actually ran into this in modern Hebrew. Some years ago, as you know, when I was in Kiev, I met the Shaliach from the Jewish uh, Agency for Israel, known as Jaffe. And he's become a good friend and uh, spent some time with him in Miami last, last summer. And he is, uh, that was his title, because Jaffe sends out uh, their, their, uh, their teams into various uh, countries where there's a large number of Jews, and their job is to find these Jews, usually in a lot of places like in Russia and in Ukraine, there are people who sort of know or think that way back, three or four generations, they might be Jewish because for so many years they were would be persecuted that the families just did, would not tell their children or grandchildren that they were Jewish. And so they would identify some who were Jewish, and then they would teach them what it meant to be a Jew, and with the end in mind of getting them to uh, make Aliyah or immigrate to Israel. And so that's his job title, was a Shaliach. So this idea develops in the um, Old Testament. It developed in uh, rabbinical literature mostly, uh, in the intertestamental period in the sense of someone who is sent by a man as a representative as the man himself. And that's stated in the, in the Talmud. Jesus uses a similar phrase, similar idea in Matthew 10:40 when he's talking to the disciples. He says, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And so that's that idea, using the uh, Greek verb, apostello, related to the noun. So within Judaism, it had developed this idea of an official representative of various groups representing the different bodies of authority within uh, Judaism. 
Paul, in fact, is functioning as a shaliach when he was sent by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to find Christians and to bring them back as, as, as prisoners. So, in summary, the root meaning of apostolos, apostolos within intertestamental Judaism had that idea of someone who is commissioned with a task and given the authority to carry out that task. And so he is responsible for fulfilling that. And so it inherently has picked up the idea of command and leadership responsibilities. Our third point is that Jesus appointed his disciples that are known as the twelve. They're even known as the twelve after Judas is gone. They're called the twelve before Matthias comes in. So this just became sort of a nickname for the group, whether they were actually twelve or not. In Luke 6.13, we read, When it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve. So there were many disciples. A disciple is simply someone who's a learner, somebody who's a student. You all are disciples by the fact that you're here with a desire to learn and to be taught this morning. And so from a wide number of disciples, uh, Jesus chose twelve who he named as apostles. John refers to it this way in John 15:16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He's talking to his disciples, the selection of those 12, uh, minus Judas, because by John 15, Judas has left. Uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So an apostle is one who is commissioned by Christ himself to the task of establishing the church in the church age. That's the technical meaning of an apostle. And this then leads to the fourth point, that there is one group designated as the twelve apostles, and that these are the ones who are called and commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples and to proclaim the gospel, to establish churches, and to provide for revelation through them God would reveal uh, the New Testament. What's interesting is the phrase at the end of Revelation. Revelation 21.14, talking about the New Jerusalem. This is in the heavenly state. This is in the new heavens and new earth, rather. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. So, it's the word there for, for uh, the foundation is themelios. Now, the reason I make this point is there is another word in Greek for foundation, and this is the same word that's used in Ephesians 2.20. So, that's an important connection. These 12 foundations, and on them are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so we're not going to get into the issue of identifying those 12 apostles. Just as a side note, you get into the issue of, is Paul's name there or is Matthias' name there? If they're both there, you have more than 12 The funny thing, when you look at numbers in the Scripture, there are different listings of the 12 tribes of Israel because there were actually 13. 
but they're always called the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's math is interesting in these passages. Our fifth point is that an apostle, there were certain qualifications. An apostle must have been an eyewitness of the words and works of Jesus Christ. In Acts 1, 21 and 22, as they are about to select someone to replace Judas, they said, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So two things come out in that verse is that they wanted someone who was qualified because they had been with Jesus from the period of his baptism at the inauguration of his public ministry and were witnesses of his teaching throughout that time and of his resurrection. Now, nobody today meets that qualification. And this is a qualification to be one of that foundational group that was called the Apostles, the Twelve. And so uh, that would exclude anyone uh, in any century since the second century of being an apostle. These are the twelve who are the foundation of the church. And Ephesians 2.20 tells us that today in the, in the preceding verses in Ephesians 2.19 and earlier, that in this church age, we now have a new entity made up of Jew and Gentile alike. We are united in the body of Christ. And in that passage from about 2.15 down to 2.19, they're identified as a new man, a new body, a new building, and a new temple. Four different metaphors to describe this new entity that we're, we're a part of. And that is known as the church. And as he concludes talking about this new temple that the Holy Spirit is building, otherwise known as the body of Christ, says that it has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, the word translated foundation is the same Greek word that is used of the foundation stones in the New Jerusalem. The 12 foundation stones are the 12 names of the apostles. And here it is using that same word for foundation for the apostles and prophets. And the word foundation means, according to the preeminent Greek lexicon, the basis for something take, something taking place or coming into being. That's what a foundation is. You only lay the foundation of a building once. It may have 60 floors, 100 floors, may have 120 floors, but there's only one foundation. It's laid once in the first century, and everything after that builds on it. So that indicates that both apostles and prophets are found part of that foundation which is laid in the first century, and they do not come in subsequent generations. So they are foundational gifts, and it would be limited to that broad technical use of, I mean, that, that narrow technical use of apostle talking about those who are commissioned uh, by Christ, those who are part of that uh, initial group. But under the seventh point, there are also others in Scripture who are called apostles. This is a generic or general 
term. They're identified by apostles, but they don't have the office of apostle. They, this is a, a, a non-technical use of the term. And what distinguishes them is that the twelve are all commissioned by Christ. They've all witnessed the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ appeared physically to Paul on the road to Damascus and was specifically and directly commissioned by Christ. But these others are not commissioned by Christ. They are commissioned by maybe another apostle, or they are commissioned by a local church. For example, Barnabas is called an apostle in Acts 14.14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in amongst the multitude, crying out. Well, Barnabas and Paul were selected by the local church in Antioch, and they were sent out by that local church to take the gospel, and they went to Cyprus, and then they went to uh, south-central Turkey, uh, to Antioch of Turkey there, and also to Iconium, uh, Lystra, and Derbe. They were commissioned by a local church. They weren't commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're sent out on a mission, and that is to take the gospel and to plant churches in that particular area. Paul was a uh, an apostle technically in the, among the twelve because he was commissioned by Christ. He's a witness of the resurrected Christ, but he's also an apostle in the general sense as he and Barnabas were commissioned by the local church and sent on that mission. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 5 and 6, Paul makes the statement, Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles? Uh, that indicates uh, the group of the twelve, the other apostles. But then he says, the brothers of the Lord and Kephas. Now, Kephas was the Aramaic name for Peter. Now, Peter is, uh, is one of the twelve. So it appears that when he says the other apostles here, and then it includes the brothers of the Lord, because remember Jude and uh, James were not saved until after the resurrection. Okay, so they wouldn't fit the qualifications of the other apostles. They were not there with Christ from the beginning of his baptism all the way through to the resurrection, and they're not even saved until after, after the resurrection. So he uses the phrase other apostles. This is in a, uh, a generic sense. And he's, it's an appositional phrase that he's talking about the brothers of the Lord and, and Peter. Peter, of course, would involve both senses. And then in verse 6, he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So there he includes Barnabas in that group. So we know that he's primarily thinking in terms of that generic sense. However, both he and Peter would be uh, of the narrow twelve. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 7, talking about those who witnessed the resurrected Christ, said that he was seen by Kephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. Okay, now Peter is one of the twelve. So this just shows you this is one of the places where he's talking about uh, the twelve apostles as just a sort of a nickname. Because when Christ was resurrected, 
How many apostles were there? How many disciples were there? How many apostles were there? Judas is gone. Judas is dead. Okay, so there's only 11. So this was one of those places where they're still called the 12, even though there's 11. Just pointing these things out. Um, so he means that these are the, the technical group that become the apostles of the early church, the foundations. And then he says, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. He appeared to a large group of whom the greater part remained to the present. In other words, he's saying, if you don't want to believe Christ was raised from the dead, we have a lot of witnesses. It only takes two or three to confirm something as true. And we've got, at this point, over 512 witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. said, many are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. After that, that is, after he appeared to the 500, he was seen by James, that's his brother, then by all the apostles. Wait a minute. In verse 5, he refers to Peter and the 12. Those are, that's the narrow sense of apostle. But when it gets down to 7, he's talking about a different group than the 12. So this is more that general sense. Those who are commissioned by the other apostles to a different ministry. And, and the eighth point is that we see that the apostles were uh, given credentials. How do you know you're an apostle? Well, the apostles perform miracles. They perform signs and wonders. Second Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So when we look at the apostle that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4.11. He's talking about that same group that are the foundational group that he mentions in Ephesians 2.20, and this refers to that narrow group of those whose names will be on the uh, 12 foundation stones in the uh, new heavens and new earth, and they are the foundation of the church. So this is a... A temporary gift. We can see that already because there's no more being added to that in that sense. That then will take us um, to a conclusion. Three things that indicate apostleship was temporary. First of all, the office was limited to those who had witnessed the resurrected Christ and were called and directly commissioned by him. That doesn't happen anymore. Second, apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church, something that only happens once, and it happened in the early church at the very beginning. That's the meaning of the word foundation. And then third, the use of apostle to designate someone who was sent by a congregation does not mean they had the spiritual gift, but that they were commissioned to a particular task. They certainly don't have the office. This gives us a pretty good understanding of that first gift, and it's going to be connected to the second gift, the second category, which is prophets. Again, it is a foundational gift, so that means it's going to be uh, temporary. 
First point is that New Testament prophets are founded on the meaning of Old Testament prophets. Now, the significance of that statement is there have been those who have come along in the last 30 or 40 years who have argued that New Testament prophets aren't like the Old Testament prophets. Apostles are the ones who replace the Old Testament prophets. New Testament prophets were different, and thus you can, we still have uh, these New Testament prophets, and they, they don't have to fit the qualifications of 100% accuracy that was for the Old Testament prophets. In other words, what they're saying is in a lot of charismatic churches and, and some churches, you have people who will stand up and, and they have a word of prophecy. They may be wrong. That's okay because they're New Testament prophets. And they're playing fast and loose with the meaning of the terms. Anybody who picks up a Bible and is read through Genesis through Malachi and then reads about prophets in Acts is going to automatically assume that the prophet in the New Testament is the same meaning as the Old Testament. There's no place where there's any, um, any new information given saying that, oh, we have New we're going to call them New Testament prophets, but they're not the same as Old Testament prophets. It's the same, same term. Second point is that, like apostles, the New Testament prophets were foundational gifts, gifted people who were uh, temporary and limited to the first century. We'll get into that next time, showing why there are some temporary gifts and some are not temporary. Third point is that prophets are listed with other spiritual gifts. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12.28, God has appointed these in the church. Notice the first two are the same that we have in Ephesians 4.11. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Doesn't mention pastors anywhere but in Ephesians 4.11. After that, miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of languages. Romans 12.6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So prophecy is listed both in the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 as well as in, in Romans 12. But it was nevertheless a temporary gift as were others. So we know at this point that the gift of apostle was a temporary gift and the gift of prophet was a temporary gift. And it is specifically said to be temporary in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, which we'll get to next time. The fourth point is that New Testament prophets were to be evaluated. Uh, this would be grounded on the Old Testament test of consistency with other authoritative revelation. That's Deuteronomy 13. And second, predictions must come true with 100% accuracy. That's Deuteronomy 18. Let's look at these passages briefly. Deuteronomy 18.20, God says to Moses, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Why? Because he, if he's speaking in the name of other gods, he's clearly a false prophet because uh, the first commandment and the Ten Commandments is that you shall have no other god before me. 
And uh, then it goes on in verse 21. If you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? See, that's a good question. A lot of people today will hear people say, God told me this, God told me that. But how do we know that God told them that? So this is the issue. You have to authenticate the messenger before you listen to them. And then in verse 22, he says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, everything he says, every detail in the prophecy has to come true. You're not going to find uh, some psychic who's going to have 100% accuracy. You're not going to find a false prophet, a prophet of Baal or a prophet of the Asherah, having 100% accuracy. Uh, They may be able to guess pretty well. Uh, I read something the other day about a psychic who predicted that there would be a war between the United States and Russia. Well, there's a lot of people who are predicting that, not calling themselves psychics. They're just uh, hedging their bets. So um, that's the criteria here. Every single thing that they say would come true. Now, some prophets spoke about things that were in the far distance, but they they gave a lot of prophecies related to near-term fulfillment so that they could be validated as a prophet of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 13.1, we have another situation. There we read, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign and a wonder. Notice what the assumption there is that there will be prophets who perform miracles. They'll do a sign. They'll do a wonder. And the sign or wonder comes to pass. See, a lot of people say, well, it's going to be fake. It won't come to pass. It's going to be a fake miracle. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this person has a sign or a wonder, and it comes to pass. See, a lot of people think that you validate just on the basis of the experience. No. You have to validate on the basis of what the Word of God says. Uh, The sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, and then what does he say? Let's go after other gods. Wait a minute. That contradicts what God said, that thou shalt have no other God before me. And so the first test is that, in Deuteronomy 18, is that um, that everything that the prophets said would happen comes to pass. And the second test is you have to evaluate what he says in light of previously accepted revelation so that you can evaluate whether or not he's telling uh, truth. If he's contradicting what is already accepted revelation, then you know he is a false prophet. If he says, let us go after other gods which you've not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to that to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. See, God allows these false teachers to test us to see if we're going to stick with what the Word of God says or get involved in following our emotions and follow after some false teacher. And so God warns the Israelites that these false teachers will come and God will use them to test you, uh, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, the issue for us, believer, is that we have to trust the Word of God and nothing else. We don't trust our emotions. We don't trust our experience. We don't look at it as saying, well, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. 
Is that what God said? Yes. Then we believe it and trust it. And we don't rely on our emotions, our intellect, or any other human factor as something that causes us to uh, disbelieve the word of God. And then uh, Moses, I mean, God goes on to say to Moses, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Why the death penalty? Because he is deceiving people. If somebody comes along under the Mosaic law and says there are many ways to God, you don't have to believe in Jesus. You can be a Muslim. You can be a Buddhist. You can be any of these other religions uh, that don't believe Christ died on the cross for your sins. And all roads lead to God. Under the Mosaic law, what you're doing is you are telling people uh, what you're telling people will lead them to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That is such a serious, serious deception and so dangerous that they need to be removed from society. And so they should be uh, executed under the death penalty. God is serious about protecting his people and protecting his word from false teaching. Fifth point is that the emphasis on New Testament prophets was the giving of divine revelation. Biblical authors such as Luke and James and John weren't apostles of the first order like uh, Peter and Matthew and John, and they had the gift of prophecy, the New Testament gift of prophecy, which was primarily for the giving of revelation. Sixth, the purpose of these foundational gifts was to provide spiritual direction in the early years of the church through verbal and written revelation until the New Testament was all written and the canon, which means the standard, the 27 books of the New Testament, uh, were all completed. And that leads us to our topic next time is what does the Bible teach about these temporary gifts? How do we know these gifts were just temporary. All of this was designed to, for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, to bring us to maturity. That's the focus of these four gifts, the apostles and prophets with the foundation at the beginning of the church, and then evangelists and pastor teachers. And the focus for individual believers is to make sure that you are uh, listening to a pastor who understands that his primary mission is to feed the sheep. His primary mission is to give spiritual nourishment to the congregation so that they can grow and mature and be effective in their spiritual life and in the ministries that God has given to them. And frankly, that doesn't happen in just an hour a week. You have to get to the point where you recognize that this is more important. Your spiritual life is more important than anything else that we do in life. And that needs to be the priority, and that governs the decisions we make about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, uh, what we emphasize in our life. Because the only thing that we take with us when we die is our spiritual maturity, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your word that we are to uh, live our lives on the basis of what's been laid down in your word. 
and that we are to grow to maturity. We're not to remain babies. We're not to remain spiritual infants. We are to grow to spiritual adulthood that we may be effective in our spiritual life and in our ministry to others. Father, we're thankful that you have given us so much in your word and that it will take more than a thousand lifetimes to truly understand all that is there. But much of it we can understand to some degree, and it is very clear from this passage that we are to focus our attention on being equipped to do the work of service, the work of ministry that you have provided for us. Father, we pray, too, for any who may be listening online to this message this morning or any who are watching it in the future, anyone here that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The gospel is good news. It's exciting news that God has given us salvation. He has provided forgiveness for the penalty of sin, and that is through the work of Christ on the cross. And that we appropriate that not by works and not by a ritual, but by simply trusting in Christ, believing in him. As the scripture says, he who has not believed in uh, the name of the Son of God is condemned already. But he who has believed has everlasting life. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the truth of this message and of your scripture this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.